Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. The final verses of James chapter 1 and the words of James chapter 2 stand as a testament to the timeless nature of the Word of God. James had touched on the law of liberty. He will come back to this again. The focus from James has been on the man or woman in Christ, living out the Word of God, obeying the Word of God, because the transforming power of the gospel of Christ, the love of Christ, it compels us. It gives us the desire within us to live for the Lord. James 1, we start with verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? A couple of years ago, I think I shared with you the well-known story of Chippy the Parakeet. Poor Chippy, if you remember, he never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage. The next, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. The phone rang, and she turned to pick it up. She'd barely said hello when she heard the dreadful sound, and poor Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened up the bag. And there was Chippy, still alive, but stunned. Well, since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom. She turned on the faucet and held Chippy underneath the running water. Then she realized that Chippy was soaked and shivering, so she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted the pet with hot air. Again. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who had initially written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. 
Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. It's not hard to see why. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. That is enough to steal a song from anyone's heart. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. Ever feel that way? It describes the certainty of trials and the feelings of being powerless that trials bring. It reminds me of the army chaplain who had a sign on his door that said, if you have troubles, come in and tell me all about them. And if you don't have troubles, come in and tell me how you do it. James has reminded us of the reality that even in the Christian life, there are trials and there are temptations. But the believer in Christ does not have to be a victim of his circumstance. True freedom is found when men have the desire within them to live out the word of God because they have learned from the word of God to become in conduct who they are in Christ. It is the liberty of being who we already are in Christ Jesus. Think of the great freedom we have, freedom from eternal separation from God, freedom from the bondage of sin, freedom to be able to choose to serve Christ instead of the flesh. This is the living faith that we live out by the power of the Holy Spirit. The person that lives out the law of liberty, the law of Christ, is not guilty of forgetting what the Word teaches us. This person continues in the Word. This person continues in obedience. This person, according to James, is a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. Blessings in the Christian life, they come from receiving and obeying the word. It's not enough just to hear. It's not enough just to understand. This is the true liberty of the gospel, living in the law of love, living in obedience to Christ. But hypocrisy, it lives on in the church, the favor of men toward the rich, the favor of men towards those of social status. James sought differently. He wanted the church to love those considered important in the eyes of God. Verse 26, again in your text. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Remember what James already told us in verse 22. If you listen to the word, but fail to live out the word, you deceive yourself. Verse 26 is another verse that teaches us it is possible for Christians to deceive themselves. Notice again the wording in verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious. Why is James talking about religion? We tend to think of religion as outward, man-made. We would prefer to talk about a living relationship with Jesus Christ. So why is James talking about religion? When we dig a little deeper, we find that the word for religion, it carries the idea of the externals of your faith. It is the things that people can see that they can witness about your faith. James was writing to the Jewish Christians, and the Jews always seem to be focused on the externals, public fasting, public prayers, making sure they were seen at the public worship services. No different today. How people dress at church, what kind of car they drive, how they appear to everyone else. 
Remember, James tells us that this person is deceived. This person thinks he is religious. This would be the person that was taking part in worship, the one hour a week Christian, who thinks if they give God one hour of worship, they don't need to live it out the rest of the week, that this is all there is to living out the Christian faith. Such a man that thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. James is saying, if you're measuring your faith by what you do externally, you're deceiving yourself. Because a better measuring rod would be whether or not your tongue has been brought under control. Notice the reference to a bridle. It means to guide or hold in check with a bridle. The bridle and the bit is what the rider would use to control the horse. It conveys the idea of both direction and control. In other words, the man's tongue is like a wild horse that is not held in check. Lying, putting others down taking the Lord's name in vain, gossip. This is the unbridled tongue of the believer in Christ. Restraining the tongue, guiding the tongue, holding back is one of the most difficult things to do in life. And the man or woman that can do this has the self-control that is part of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. It is inconsistent with who we are in Christ to let unrestrained garbage come out of our mouths. Solomon wrote, Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Take a look at the verdict that comes down at the end of verse 26. This one's religion is useless. Religion, the outward display of worship. You see, if you focus on the externals but do not bridle your tongue, if you focus on the externals with an unclean heart, that kind of worship is useless. Notice again the first words of verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Pure and undefiled religion. Those that hold to lordship salvation, those that hold to reformed theology, they look at verse 26 and they say that this man is not saved. He does not have true faith. But the man in verse 27, they would say he has true faith. But notice James does not say anything at all about genuine faith or counterfeit faith. That's not the issue. That's inserting something into the text that is not there. The issue is pure faith or impure faith. Believers in Christ are more than capable of having impure faith. Unless you think you never sin and your heart is always clean before God. The believer in verse 26 is saved. He is just not acting like the new man he is in Christ. And if you understand that James is speaking of the externals of the faith when speaking of religion, well, then verse 27, it makes a lot of sense. James is proclaiming to believers in Christ that if your hearts are pure before the Lord, if we are walking by faith and not by sight, if we are living in fellowship with Christ, then... The externals of our faith will not be on making a show of ourselves before men. It will be on becoming a servant of others. God does not want our focus on putting on an outward show for our fellow man. God wants us to live in fellowship with him, to walk with Christ. And when we do, it will manifest itself by being a servant of others, especially to those within the body of Christ. The religion the outward worship of the believer in verse 26 is worthless. 
The religion spoken of here is pure and undefiled. It has purpose because it is grounded in Christ himself. Grasp this lesson from the word of God. Words fail me. I cannot express to you how important this teaching is. Maturity in the faith is not how much you know about the Bible. Maturity in the faith is not about what you do outwardly in the faith. Maturity in Christ boils down to how much you trust Christ, how much you trust the word of God as you walk and live by faith. And when a believer in Christ is walking by faith, when a believer in Christ is living like the new creation that they are in Jesus Christ, they become a servant of others in the body of Christ. Which is why James mentions right here, visiting orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This was visiting orphans, visiting the widows with the express purpose of caring for them, of helping to meet their needs. This implies concern. This implies getting involved in their lives and helping them out. This isn't to be a one-time thing. This should be the attitude that rules the day in the life of the believer. Now, the reason we see such a concern in the word of God about the care of widows and orphans is because out of all of the groups of people in that day, these two groups were the most in need. An orphan would have no one to look after them. A widow was usually unable to provide for herself. These two groups are listed together all throughout the Old Testament as two groups of people who need our help, as two groups who need our compassion. But the lesson is bigger than just this. If we are walking with Christ, it means we should not only have a heart for God, but a heart for the people that God himself has compassion on. I like Deuteronomy 10 on this. It says that God administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. And Psalm 68 tells us that God is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows. Genuine worship of God is best seen as we reflect the attitudes of God himself. There is a special place in the heart of God for the afflicted. This is loving others just as Christ himself loved. Reaching out to others, knowing that the person you are helping will never be able to return the favor. Over in Luke 14, Christ spoke about this. Listen to what he said. When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's beautiful. Your reward will be at the judgment seat of Christ. Genuine worship of the Lord is lived out by becoming a servant to those in need. James tells us in verse 27 that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is keeping oneself unspotted from the world. What is James getting at? Pure and undefiled religion is helping the poor, but it also involves the obligation to keep ourselves pure. This is the inner obligation that Christ gives to us to become more like him, to live in the world but not be a part of the world. And it certainly could be said that any Christian who thinks too highly of himself to fellowship with the poor, to help the poor, is in serious danger of being infected by the greed, the apathy, and the self-centered focus of the world. 
take a look at verse 1 in James 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. About a dozen years ago, a church in Fresno, California, came out with a plan that changed the landscape of the church. On Sunday morning at Calvary Church of Fresno, which is a large church, about 18,000 members, members who tithed would flash green Costco-like cards at the greeters who let them in early and ushered them in to special seating. One of the men who took part in the program, a man by the name of Dan Phelps, he went on record and said the following, the seats, they have more padding and they recline as he kicked back before the sermon. And then he said this, I feel a little guilty, but you can't knock the comfort. Calvary is believed to be the first church in America to use membership cards to give out privileges to certain members. First-time visitors are offered the best seats, plush recliners in the orchestra section. While those who attend but do not tithe carry orange membership cards and are forced to sit in hard, stadium-style seats. The pastor, Gerald Dennis, had this response. We give honor to whom honor is due. If you tithe or volunteer in some way, you deserve a special thank you. Churches like this are drawing people by the thousands. The belief is that as rich people attend, they are said to give more, which means the church is better able to promote the gospel. At Life Family Center in Abilene, Texas, members at all levels earn reward points, almost like frequent flyer miles for attending and tithing. The points add up to free hotel stays, vacation packages, and tickets to NASCAR events. This church actually has private skyboxes where groups watch the service enjoying hors d'oeuvres and deep leather chairs. Lovey Peterson, pastor of Life Family Center, gave this excuse. We compete with professional sporting events, not other churches. I would rather people come here than a football stadium, so I offer bigger perks. Churches around the country are adding some form of the club card, and perhaps their mindset can be captured with the words of the old credit card commercial that said, membership has its privileges. Let the words of James stand. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. James was teaching for believers in Christ to end this mindset, this type of sinful behavior once and for all. The idea is of showing bias because of social rank, wealth, or because of race. It is to make a judgment about someone based on the externals of appearance, giving favor to some and neglecting others. Do you remember that Peter had to learn this in Acts 10 after he had the vision, after he went to Cornelius and the Gentiles? Peter testified, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And then just a little bit further on, Peter also said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Can you see the pattern in James? It is of the world to honor the rich and fail to have compassion on the poor. Because as Peter testified so long ago, God shows no partiality. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Take comfort from knowing that even though the world around us is corrupt, God is just in how he deals with men. Being partial 
It's inconsistent with who we are as men and women who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice again the title that James gives to Christ. James testifies, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now notice in many translations, the words the Lord are italicized, and it's telling us that these words are not in the text, meaning they've just simply been added by the translators to smooth out the reading. So it should read, our Lord Jesus Christ of glory, or our Lord Jesus Christ from glory indicating that because Christ is God, this is where he dwells, in glory with the Father and the Spirit. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is giving us his confession of faith as to the true identity of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord Jesus Christ of glory. Now that James had encountered the risen Christ, now that James was indwelled by the Spirit of God, his doubts were gone, and he now stood ready to wholeheartedly acknowledge Jesus Christ as the incarnate glory of God. In the Old Testament, the manifestation of the presence of God was seen in the Shekinah cloud over the tabernacle displaying the glory of God. The glory of the Lord filled the temple built by Solomon. In the New Testament, we see the glory of God represented in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. We go back to the words of John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This was promised long ago to the nation of Israel. In Isaiah 40, God's word promised the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And in the New Testament, we are told that we should now be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The idea from James is that if you understand who Jesus truly is, this idea of showing partiality within the body of Christ, it should never be. It should never be a part of our outward testimony to others. God shows mercy and grace to all men. He doesn't play favorites, and so it should be within the body of Christ. Here comes the example, starting with verse 2. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is just illustrating his point, and the example he gives is two men walking into the assembly of believers, gathered together for worship, typically meeting in the homes. One of them is a rich man with gold rings and fine clothes. The other man is poor. He is dressed in shabby clothes. The idea given here? is a man with gold rings dripping off of his fingers. Jewish people wore rings. That was a part of the culture. Romans, rich Romans, they would pile, I mean just pile the rings on their left hand. This is how you showed your wealth back then. And listen to how far it went. In the city of Rome, there was actually shops where you could rent rings for wearing on special occasions. This spread throughout the Roman Empire, and it became such a problem that by the time the second century rolled around, leaders of the church had to teach Christians they should limit themselves to wearing 
just one ring. One man walks in with gold rings and nice clothes. The second man that came in was poor in filthy clothes. No mention of any ring on this man, but his clothes were dirty. They were well-worn. Most poor people only had one garment, one set of clothes, and think of the filth and the stains from working. The odor could be strong. The rich man gets the attention. The poor man is ignored. The rich man is honored. The poor man is disgraced. It should not be the color of your skin that is the focus. It should not be the number of degrees that you have or the size of your bank account. God is not impressed by any of these things. God is not impressed by your position, your status. The rich man here is given the good seat. The poor man is actually given a choice, but some choice. Either stand or sit on the floor by my feet, by the footstool. The poor man is told to sit next to his footstool on the floor. The poor man isn't even offered the footstool to sit on. And why would the rich man put on the fine clothes and the rings? To gain the favor of men. Here comes the application from James in verse 4. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is challenging these dear brothers in Christ to admit that if this is what they were doing, they stood guilty of being partial. In calling them judges, James is letting them know that this is what they made of themselves. They tried to judge based on the outward appearance, and this was all motivated by sinful thoughts. Because when men do this, they are often thinking, what can we get from this rich man? The word that James used for partiality comes from the same verb as the word wandering. James was testifying, showing this type of partiality shows that you have actually wandered in your faith. Then look at verse 5. It's a game changer. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Notice the passionate plea. Listen, my beloved brethren. The motivation from James is love, love for Christ and love for his people. Treating the poor like this is in total opposition to the compassion and love that God himself demonstrates to the poor. The fact remains, God has chosen, past tense, the poor for himself. Being poor doesn't hurt them in the eyes of God. In fact, it helps them. What does the Apostle Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. According to James, the poor have great opportunities to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. Listen closely to me. This is not about salvation in verse 5. This is not a verse about God choosing the poor people to eternal salvation. You see, usually this verse is used to support the idea that God chooses the poor for salvation, but it doesn't teach that. The contrast is not between a poor man with faith and a rich man without faith. It is not a contrast between a believer and an unbeliever. Stay with the wording of James. It does not take rich faith in Christ to get saved. It just takes faith. James is talking about rich faith. The poor man here has a lot of faith. And entering the kingdom 
of Christ is not the same as an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. These are two different aspects of the future. An inheritance includes ruling with Christ, like we read in Luke 19. Getting into the kingdom is one thing. Ruling with Christ is another. The issue at hand in verse 5 is not eternal salvation. The issue is how much do we trust God in our lives day by day? Being poor in the first century meant that you were often left to beg for your next meal. And the point is, when you have nothing, when you are completely destitute, all you are left with is your faith. Your faith should grow. Your faith should deepen. And the world may view these people as poor, but God views them as rich in faith. When they let the tough circumstances of life give them another opportunity to trust Christ. Rich in faith is not about salvation. Rich in faith is not just going through the circumstances of life of being poor, but it is responding to poverty with faith in Jesus Christ. This believer in Christ demonstrates their love for God and will receive an inheritance in the kingdom of God. The last time we saw James use this phrase, to those who love him, was back in verse 12 of chapter 1, speaking of the crown of life which teaches us that the crown of life and the inheritance of the coming kingdom are both speaking of future rewards from Christ. The rich man does not have the same opportunities to trust in Christ in his everyday life because he doesn't have to worry about his next meal. He doesn't have to worry about trusting the Lord for the basic provisions of life. James is teaching that God's plan is that the poor man can be rich in faith, because he has learned to trust God. But the rich man, he may never have those same opportunities. The man that walks into the assembly of believers with nothing more than an old ragged shirt on just may be more rich in faith than you could ever know. The person rich in faith has a position in the coming kingdom of God. They will be prominent in the coming kingdom, known for their love for God. So why would you despise them now? Look at the contrast in our last few verses. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? With their eyes on the riches of this world and not on the coming kingdom of Christ, these believers had dishonored the poor man. Not only did they underestimate the faith and the role of the poor in the coming kingdom of God, they failed to recognize that the wealthy are much more likely to be an enemy of the Christian faith. Christ testified in Mark 10 how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. At this point in time, the Jewish Christians were scattered, and it was the wealthy Jews taking advantage of the poor, dragging them into the courts, meaning here, dragging the Christians out of their homes and into the Jewish courts. This is the book of Acts. Wealthy Jews making havoc of the church, entering the homes, dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. It made no sense. It made no sense to show partiality to the rich when this is how they treated the Jewish believers. The Jews blasphemed the name of Jesus and sought to persecute his followers. Why would you favor them? For believers to show partiality is to dishonor the glorious name to which we've been called. 
The true testimony is written down of a pastor way back in the early 1800s who was approached by a man before the Sunday morning service. This man asked the pastor if he could talk with him after the service. The pastor agreed. The deacons of this church were a little bit nervous about this. They knew who this man was. This man, speaking to the pastor, was one of the roughest men in town. After the service, the deacons tried to warn the pastor not to go with the man. They were worried the man would end up killing the pastor. But the pastor told them he had given the man his word. So sure enough, the pastor and the man met. The man led the pastor down the street, up an alley, and into the back door of a building. The man turned to lock the door and told the pastor to sit down. Then the man walked behind a desk and pulled a gun out of the drawer and put it on a desk. And then he said this to the pastor, I heard you say something last night and I want to know if it is true or not. And so the pastor asked him, what'd you hear me say? The man told him, you said the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son can cleanse a man from all sin. Well, the pastor corrected him just a little bit and said, no, I actually didn't say that. God's word says that. But this man just looked at the pastor and said with a cold tone, you don't know me and you don't know what I've done. Right now in the room we are sitting, we are sitting behind a bar, and we have an illegal gambling room. The gambling is fixed, and I have taken every last dollar from many men, and many have even committed suicide. Can God forgive that? The pastor responded, All I can say is that the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. So the man told him, that's not the whole story. And he told the pastor, I own the bar. Men come in and drink. Wives come in wearing only rags and beg me not to sell booze to their husbands. I throw them out back into the streets. I sell their husbands booze until they run out of money and then I kick them out too. Can God forgive a man like that? Again, the answer came. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man from all sin. So again, the man that owned the bar told the pastor, but you don't know the full story. I have killed several people who have gotten in my way. I have hired men to kill others. And once more, the question came, can God forgive me? And once more, the answer came, all I can tell you is that the Bible says all sin. Then the man told the pastor, across the street in a big house, I have a wife and a beautiful little child to whom I have been wicked and cruel, and I haven't spoken a decent word to in 16 years. Now, at this point, the pastor stood up, and I wouldn't recommend this, but he grabbed the man. He shook him and said, listen to me. You have told me one of the most horrible stories I have ever heard, and if it were up to me, I dare say you would find no forgiveness. But all I can tell you, is that the Bible says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The man then told the pastor that is all he wanted to know. He unlocked the door, letting the pastor go. Over the next 24 hours, this man thought long and hard about the information that he'd been given. He accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the time the next morning came, his wife was in the kitchen cooking breakfast. She sent their daughter upstairs to let him know that the breakfast was ready. When the daughter did not return, the mother went upstairs herself to see what was going on. And what she saw completely amazed her. There her husband was sitting on the bed with their daughter on his lap for the first time in his life. 
telling his daughter how much he loved her with tears running down his cheeks. When the man saw his wife, he shared Christ with her. He told her about the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. He shared the message of redemption with his family so that they too could be a part of the family of God. He closed the bar he owned and became an active witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here was a man who was cleansed and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. The change that Christ had brought about, it could not be denied. A man that would have been unapproachable to most. This is the type of man that Jesus came for. Christ, he came for the least of these. He came to change lives, to transform them. I struggle when I hear people get all gooey inside, when someone wealthy or famous professes faith in Christ. We often seem to care less if the homeless alcoholic or the man in prison comes to know Christ. Because to honor one above the rest is to dishonor Christ. Jesus came for the down and out. Jesus came for the least of these. He came for those without. God chose the poor to be rich in faith. And that is why I honestly think our faith is weak. Because most of us are wealthy people living in a wealthy land. To be a powerful instrument for Christ that brings glory to his name, it requires that we walk in humility. But if we begin to play favorites within the body of Christ, it will lead to all kinds of division. And this is completely opposed to the plan of God for his church. The division that sin brings, it detracts from the glory of the Lord. Continue to walk in love, especially towards those rich in faith showing no partiality before God, showing no partiality before men for the glory of God, for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The rapture, Israel, the tribulation, the kingdom of God, the millennium, the judgment seat of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, These are just some of the topics that we cover in our book, What Lies Ahead. We wanted to write a book that was easy to understand that would give a good, solid overview of the end times. You can find it on our website, returntotheword.com. That book, again, is What Lies Ahead. And if you've read it, leave us a review on Amazon. It helps us. It helps us to tell others about this study of God's plan for the end times. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Return to the Word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.